0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Voting in Droves edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, freshly back from the rejuvenating faith in humanity reaffirming city of Las Vegas. Have you been to Las Vegas recently? Not since I was a little kid. This, talk about homeland insecurity. I, I really, I just, I, I really hope the Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce is not listening right now. I have never seen so many poorly dressed, misbehaving adults congregated in one place. That, that sounds and, great. And
0: yet it contributes to the economy, it contributes to the vibrancy of our national culture.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know about the second part. I'm sure the first <laughs> part. I'm sure I'm sure the dinner that I paid for alone contributed to some part of our GDP.
2: And, and Shane, is what's hap- what happened there? Is it staying there?
1: Um, I, well, I'm not going back, so whatever I left is staying in Las Vegas, because I mean I was out there speaking for to a conference, lovely conference, thank you for having me if you're listening at the Merchant Risk Council. These are people who do online fraud detection, really super cool, it was interesting, but my God, Las Vegas, I mean, I, I just have never gotten the appeal.
2: Well, I'm going there next month to promote... The future of violence. Oh, are you really? Yeah. Well, I saw some
1: violence when I was in
2: Las Vegas. Okay. Maybe the okay.
0: future of violence is to be found in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah,
2: it,
1: the it's future. Bright. Sure, <laughs> it's it, it, in it. But Vegas is bright. Yeah. Uh, God, don't go to Vegas. Um, I'm joined as always by my friends Tamara kaufman Koppenwittis, Morgan Fairchild's favorite foreign policy wonk,
0: and she is my favorite foreign policy tweeter.
1: Yeah. So tell us what what you, what was your, your encounter with uh, what what was Morgan Fairchild in? She wasn't a Charlie's Angel.
0: She, no, she was in Dallas. Dallas! She, she was on Friends. Well,
1: I thought she was in Knots Landing. I don't think she was on Dallas. Was she? Hold on. If we had all of world knowledge at our fingertips. Continue. All
0: please. I know is that as a young person in the 1980s, she was one of the most beautiful, glamorous um, stars that you could find on network TV.
2: And you thought to yourself as, as a teenager then... Ah, someday I will follow her on Twitter.
0: Had I been able to conceive of Twitter, I certainly would have thought that. Um, but as it is, in the amazing world that we've entered in the 21st century, I'm delighted to be able to follow Morgan Fairchild on Twitter. She she tweets a lot on foreign policy. She does. She's a great news aggregator. Um, but she also tweets a lot on uh, animal rights, on animal rescue, uh, on health care issues. She's just a great social activist and social presence. So Falcon. it was fun to meet her today.
1: Falcon Crest, by the way. Falcon Crest. I think Crest. it was Falcon Thank Crest. You. I feel like it was something else. It really is, though, a kind of a sign of, like, distinction in the foreign policy Twitterati when Morgan Fairchild starts following you. It's a thing. Yeah. I remember when it happened to me. I was very excited. <laughs> um, it's a
0: marker that you've arrived. Yeah,
1: I totally didn't follow her back. No, I'm just kidding. i <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, and of course, I'm also joined by my friend Ben Wittes exhausted from rock climbing and relentless book flacking, clearly if you're going to Las Vegas.
2: I went rock climbing uh, with I, I, my son dressed up in a suit, and we went rock climbing, and I took pictures of him climbing in a suit. So maybe next time we will do the rock climbing with the future of violence. We'll have people climbing and holding it oh, next yeah. to their heads. We'll get nice pictures. I
1: think that's exactly what you should do. do you
0: need two hands to climb?
2: Well, you know, most you want people, people to climb do. The I, book well, we'll throw the book up to them. We'll just get a picture of them up yeah. there, you know, seventy percent way up going, you know, yeah. future of violence. Hey, can we go? Why was your son in a suit
1: climbing a rock wall? Again?
2: Uh, because it was just one of those, you know, so if you're get dressed up.
0: You got to climb it with style. Yeah, and,
2: look and, and he's good a doing stylish it. kid. Okay. So there is a fabulous picture of uh, cross uh, uh, spaghetti on the wall marketing here of John Turk mm-hmm. when he was probably 19 or 20 years old. He put on a really nice suit. It's probably the last time he's ever worn a really nice suit. <laughs>
1: That's not made of like bears. And
2: he got in t- on a motorcycle and he drove the motorcycle over a dirt um, rise. And, wow. and there's a picture of him <laughs> flying over the rise with this great suit and a ridiculous goatee um and so that was kind of the inspiration gabriel was into climbing and he's kind of into clothes now i said go put on some nice clothes and let's take pictures of you climbing i like it you know where they
1: do those kind of motorcycle stunts where? in vegas vegas uh, yeah okay. it's all about vegas <laughs> you're gonna see it the cirque du soleil i'm sensing
0: a theme to this show
1: i just can't get over it i was so i was there for 36 hours and i was just so untraumatized. <laughs> and you can smoke inside everywhere that's important. Yeah, was, well, yeah, I mean... They, okay,
0: and there's therapy for that.
1: I just, I feel like I landed on another planet. I just, I don't know. I'm going to get over it. All right. On today's show, uh, dissecting the Israeli elections and the reassessment of U.S. relations with Israel, Yemen is descending into more chaos than usual, and China finally comes clean about its cyber warfare and spying programs, plus in our object lesson segment, dispiriting maps and eerie photographs. Um... Ben, why don't you kick us off with, uh, we're all going to talk about the Israeli elections, but well, your thoughts, give us the, you know, the download. So
2: first thing I need to say is that everything I said on rational security last week about the coming Israeli elections was wrong. Um, it's that, of you to admit that. That does not distinguish me, I'm afraid, from any other person <laughs> who purported to prognosticate about the Israeli elections. Right. Um,
0: Except perhaps your wife, who Uh-oh. at a public event at Brookings before the Israeli elections predicted a center-right government.
2: Um, yes. Oh, okay, okay. Let me just say <laughs> the polls were all wrong. The exit polls were also all wrong. Um, so, uh, and one thing that I don't think we really fully took account of last week was uh, just how dirty Netanyahu was going to play, and whether that actually played a role in his win or not is uh, a little bit opaque to me, but it has in at least two respects really driven up the friction with the White House, which is now at a level just sort of unlike anything in our adult lifetimes, uh, much worse than The last time it was this bad or much worse than the last time it was really bad, which was, you know, back during the Shamir administration, during the first Bush administration. Uh, I don't think that ever got as bad as this. And so we are now in a situation where Netanyahu has won the election, but there are real questions about the U.S. Israel relationship that are, would have been hard to predict, I think. Even a week ago. So here's my
1: question on that. And I was talking with another journalist about this recently. And I was like you, I was sort of taking this view that it was potentially very dire, it's certainly dramatic. I mean we're hearing you know, whispers about not vetoing resolutions before the UN Security Council that will, you know, fundamentally change the relationship. But playing the devil's advocate here, I mean Tammy, maybe to you, like a, how likely is this? How much is this just bluster from the White House and blowing off steam and what John McCain called, you know, I think he said, a temper tantrum that Obama was having with the White House? And B, even if we did decide, or if Obama decided in the next two years to just be a royal pain in the ass to Israel, isn't the U.S.-Israeli relationship bigger than all of that? Or is something really shifted?
0: Well, I, I think there are two different levels here. There's the sort of government-to-government policy level, and then there's the broader societal level. And both are important. I think both are frayed in certain ways, but both also have some strong fundamentals. So I guess what, you know, the bottom line is the answer is somewhere in between. But I think what the administration is doing is, yes, partly in a rather undisciplined and unfortunate manner, venting spleen um, and their peak is understandable netanyahu did was egregious in a number of ways over the last months not just over the last week um, and uh, and so there is some grievance there but at the same time you know they have this <laughs> they have this moment where he went so far he knew he was going to have to walk his statements on arab voters and on the two state solution voting back in droves, somehow as he
1: warned the israeli yes. your citizens are voting in droves
0: Yes, it really is awful when your citizens are voting in droves. Um,
1: And all we have is you. All we have is you. Get out, vote once, vote often.
0: Right, vote often. Um, So, you know, if he was going to have to walk it back somehow, then perhaps one could argue that what the White House has done with all of its statements over the last week is put a marker down, a very hard marker, to sort of push Netanyahu and say, you're going to have to walk it back more than you think in order to make it okay and maybe to squeeze some incremental gains out of it. And, you know, there was news just this morning that the Israeli government had unexpectedly postponed a meeting that was supposed to decide on some settlement construction in a particularly sensitive neighborhood near Jerusalem. And so, you know, if the administration is being tactical, maybe they're using this to wring some concrete concessions, more than just rhetoric, out of Netanyahu as he enters office. But maybe it's just spleen. I guess what I would say is I agree with Ben, it's unprecedented. What I think is really unfortunate about it is that this tension at the at the head to head, government to government level is exacerbating some underlying trends in American politics and American public opinion, where, you know, Netanyahu did this first by coming and giving the speech, getting caught up in American partisan politics. And we talked about this before, on the left in the United States, uh, progressive Americans increasingly look at Israel through a different lens. They are more um, skeptical on use of force with respect to Iran. They are more insistent on a human rights approach with respect to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and therefore they are less sort of in love with Israel than progressives in the United States have been for a long time. And unfortunately, I think these these sort of fits of peak between the leaders just widen that gap further. And whatever the long-term trend was, it's making it worse and it's making it come quicker.
2: I think that's right. And I, I, I also think the calculation in the White House, to the extent there is one, as opposed to just venting spleen, is that Netanyahu is going to form uh what Tamara called a center right government, but is really a pretty right government right. and a right religious government, and that there is going to be a series of confrontations about things like individual settlements as well as things like uh returning to negotiations, um, and a confrontation about Iran if they manage to do these deals. And so Part of the question is, do you want to set up a the normal U.S.-Israel love affair from which each of those um, confrontations seems like a lover's spat, or do you want to set up, hey, there are some basic differences between our two governments on core matters of policy that cause friction, so that then people understand each of those things in terms of the friction and the relationship. And I think normally, there's a, a, a instinct to describe the strength of the relationship and all of these episodes as departures from that strength or as stresses on that basic relationship. And here, I think you are seeing a movement to describe it as a strained relationship in general mm-hmm. that then situates each of these sources of stress. And I think that's a that's a difference, and it's a it's a difference that. Uh, yes, is partisan inflected right now, but you know U.S. interests won't fundamentally change if there's a Republican administration, and it really just partly describes the fact that U.S. interests and Israeli interests on some of these issues are not aligned. But I wonder if it, if it, if it, if, it, if there were a Republican president,
1: that it would actually change more deeply. I mean, what impressed sort of me about taking everything together, and you know, sort of maybe as the starting point with. Netanyahu speaking before Congress and, you know, as you put it, you know, unofficially joining the Republican Party. I mean, it sort of is this sense, that at least, maybe I don't spend as much time in the region like tomorrow as you do, but it just seems to me that fundamentally Netanyahu gets what you were saying, that the traditional base of support among the American left and among progressives is just simply not something that he can count on anymore. I mean, when I was over there very briefly in December, we were on one of these sort of, you know, little junkets that's, you know, designed for you, and we were asking our host, like, why are you doing this towards the end of the year? It's the holidays, there's only four of us, you put this together very quickly. Like, why not just wait for a bigger sort of event and bring more people? And they said, candidly, after the Gaza war, we really feel like we're losing the support of journalists. We feel like we're losing the support of the American public. And we basically want to do everything we can, to, you know, bring you over and propagandize to you. And I just feel like, you know, Netanyahu seems to sense that where there's a more powerful base of support in this country is among Christians, and particularly Christian evangelicals, who generally are more aligned with the right. And that that seems like that's where he is betting the future of his American support is. I mean, and if that's right, that to me is also, like, that goes in this sort of seismic category.
0: Well, I, if, if that's in fact his calculation, that is a fundamental shift in the traditional Israeli mode of engaging the United States because the premise in the relationship has always been that, um, that Israel needs broad support in American society. It needs broad support in American politics. It's not, a, it's not a hedging strategy, but it's a strategy to have as wide a base as possible. And for Netanyahu to say, in order to avoid feeling pressured on my preferences, my policy preferences, which are right-of-center preferences, I need allies in the United States who aren't just allies of Israel, they're allies of my policy preferences, that is a, you know, that's a conscious decision to narrow the base that has potential long-term consequences. Netanyahu may end up being Israel's second longest or longest serving prime minister, but he's not going to be prime minister forever. And, And I think you know, not only does he have to think about what well, legacy does he leave behind in this bilateral relationship, but he also has to think about what does he want to do having won, having achieved the right-wing coalition? What's it for? And, um, and what's the relationship with the United States for? If it's fundamentally about giving Israel security, assurance, and insurance in a very unstable region, then resting it on a narrow base is short-sighted, to say the least.
1: Okay, moving on. Um, tomorrow we're going back to you for your wordplay. Uh, Yemen, as we record this, is spiraling into chaos. It's even
2: worse shape than Israel. Even worse <laughs> shape than Israel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're playing a little like uh, Where's Waldo with uh, the Yemeni president this week. Um, so fill us in. What's what's happening in this? Uh, uh, a cauldron of uh, the Middle East.
0: Sure. Well, we woke up this morning to rumors that uh, that the president of Yemen, uh, Abd Rabo Mansour al Hadi, uh, had fled the country. And uh, it's now been reported um, that he uh, left the port of Aden on a boat after the Houthi militants that have been inching their way uh, toward wider territorial control in Yemen came w- came close within striking distance of the, the southern ho- city of Aden.
2: The Houthis are voting in droves. They are, <laughs> they, are in droves.
0: they are uh, marching in droves. <laughs> with guns. Um, with guns. <laughs> and, uh, and, and,
2: and airplanes.
0: <laughs> right. And, uh, and only you, Ben, yeah, uh, can try to counter We have only you, Mr.
2: Hadi. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, Your boat um, is waiting, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so Hadi, we have to remember, was installed... Um, during the Arab Spring as sort of a, a pact, a transitional pact that was arranged whereby Ali Abdullah Saleh, the, the president for life essentially of Yemen, uh, voluntarily stepped down, uh, was given a comfortable retirement, uh, and, um, and Hadi was put in place temporarily in essence to help negotiate a, a national dialogue process and new constitution and new elections. And that process pretty much stalled out and so he's remained the president by default. And one of the reasons it stalled out is because it didn't incorporate the Houthis, who are uh, a religious minority, but, um, but this is a country, Yemen, that has long been divided along tribal and religious and um, sort of uh, culture lines. Uh, and, and so the Houthis, the Houthis have been kept out of that negotiating process, and they've been fighting their way in. now. Of course, this is also a proxy war in the context of a region-wide proxy war, uh, roughly between Iran on the one side and Saudi Arabia on the other, or between Shia power and Sunni power. Is Iranian
1: backing of the Houthis taken as a given, I mean?
0: It is taken as an absolute given in the region. There is – I think Western governments acknowledge that there's something to that, although I think that there are differences. Um, in terms of what came first, the Houthi advance or the Iranian support, and um, whether you should really consider the Houthis a proxy force. But certainly from the Saudi perspective, um, this is very, very close to home. This is their backyard. They've certainly treated Yemen like their backyard, and they're feeling increasingly encircled by the Iranians. Um, so this, you know, what happened today is creating a real sense of crisis within the Arab Gulf states who are, let's remember, our important partners in this whole anti-ISIS fight. Um, and the other dimension of this that is worth noting is that it was only last August in announcing our new anti-ISIS battle that President Obama cited Yemen as an example, as a model for our counterterrorism strategy that other people would be the boots on the ground. We would work from the air, maybe some special forces, and Yemen is the way we want to do things. Well, look at where Yemen is today. If this is the model, what does that mean for Iraq?
2: <laughs> it's, it, it's actually probably a model in a more literal way than he meant, which is we go in and help things fall apart completely. Uh, it's probably not the sense that he meant the model, but it...
1: Well, you know, this, this was to me an important question, too, about You know, look, uh, reporters like me, we always go back and we second-guess. This is what we do, right? So, okay, I'm going to second-guess the administration here now. Should we have seen this coming? Did we focus a strategy, a counterterrorism strategy, almost exclusively on drones, on remote strikes, uh, to the detriment of what should have been a broader effort to help Yemen through this transitional period, to find allies in the country? And I was talking with a former State Department official today who was saying, you know, for years the embassy employees in Sanaa were compla- camp complaining that they basically couldn't leave the compound, they could not go out and meet people. So <clears throat> it sounds like we just got very focused on drones and didn't really have a longer plan for what Yemen was going to be about. We may have had a counterterrorism strategy very focused on al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but that doesn't solve the broader problem of what's well, happening to so this I, country. I don't
2: know. I, I, I want to make an argument that we should at least consider the possibility that it really isn't up to us whether Yemen, Yemen is a country of 20 million people or something uh, with very little water, very little resources, it's desperately poor, it's been a powder keg for a long time, Uh, and our capacity to prevent it from imploding may have always been exceptionally limited and so, you know, maybe you'd sort of, the policy was, do what you can along the way, kill some really bad people who want to blow things up as long as you can, and hope for the best, and help the government to the extent that you can. But maybe you don't kid yourself that that this has a good ending. There are many, many more ways for it to end badly than well.
0: Well, I think that's true, but it's also very interesting to hear you each put forward these hypotheses. I actually see the failure of the American approach in Yemen to be somewhat different in nature, which is to say I think the U.S. didn't rely over much on drones. I think it also tried to build up the domestic military security counterterrorism capacity of the Yemeni uh, government, which (laughs) – means, among other things, that there are weapons left behind that the Houthis are now capturing. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it shows the limits of that strategy of trying to create ground forces that aren't us to, uh, to help us fight our counterterrorism battles. But really what happened in Yemen is that we were – the U.S. was willing to invest on the security side. We had views that there was a necessary political strategy to go along with that, but we were not – willing and maybe not able to enforce those views on the folks in the region who had different ideas and we sort of ceded the political realm Yemen's national reconciliation process the fate of the national dialogue the fate of the elections to the Saudis and others in the region who had more of a stake and were willing to put more money and effort into you know doing and to advancing their preferences and so all of the investments we made on the security side were never going to be sufficient if the politics weren't right. And we were not strong-arming to make the politics right. And so it fell apart.
1: So that's the that reason the question then, why, why didn't we strong-arm it, right? Why didn't we exert ourselves more forcefully? I mean, Because look, we at just the pre- end of
0: the day, it matters much more to the Saudis and to the Iranians and to the GCC states than it matters to us. Mm. And- you know, our interests are important to us, our counterterrorism interests in Yemen, but the, they are constrained. Whereas for the Saudis, Yemen is their next-door neighbor, their backyard, their soft underbelly. For them, it's existential. So we, the amount of strong-arming we would have had to do to override their preferences would have been significant. And given the, the level of our interests, we weren't going to make that investment. But
1: see, now it sounds like you're saying that like when Obama... I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth a little bit here, but when Obama comes out and says Yemen is the model for our counterterrorism strategy, that says to me this is critically important. I mean, we pulled our remaining 100 forces out of Yemen on Monday. We're gone. We left. Bye-bye. Right, we got on the boat, and we're gone. And it seems to me that if he was serious about holding out that country and our approach there as a model for counterterrorism, which is going to require having a physical presence in that country and not just sending in drones from Djibouti, then we should have invested arguably more in that transition and not left it to the Saudis and, and then created a regional proxy war.
0: Well, I, I think that's a, a very important point to raise. I guess what I would say is that the decisions they took suggest to me that, in fact, America's counterterrorism interests do not go all the way to necessitating Yemen's stability or Yemen's success. We can take care of our problem, threat prevention, in a narrower way if we have to. So if the region We'll find out. Well, we will find out. I think you're right, but that was the premise. And and so I guess my feeling is if we were always willing to recognize that our interests were more limited than our regional partners and we were not going to override their preferences, maybe we shouldn't have tried to do it halfway. Okay.
1: All right. Well we shall see. Chapter two. Um, all right, so my wordplay is going to be uh a fascinating Chinese military strategy document. Yes, it is fascinating. Um, That was recently, it came out last year, but it was only recently translated. It takes analysts like a year to actually translate this thing and figure out what it means. It's called The Science of Military Strategy. It's put out by the top research institute of the People's Liberation Army. And this time around, it did something um, remarkable and unexpected, but kind of a no surprise to anyone. China officially acknowledged, yes, it does have cyber offensive capabilities <gasps> in its military, <clears throat> and it has a program for spying on other countries in cyberspace.
2: And it also acknowledged that those were Chinese troops that invaded uh, Crimea last year. Yes, China <laughs> campaigned about
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> and Area 51, and you know. Um, no, it, and they were voting in droves, too. We they would were, say. The, Chinese the Chinese always were vote in droves. in droves. They totally vote. There's a lot of them.
0: That's what happened in the Ukrainian election.
1: Yep. Yeah. Problem solved they, Mystery solved. No, really, really this, this, this document, it, it's very interesting. I um, uh, we, we actually give a shout out to a uh, great uh, a Chinese analyst named Joe McReynolds who actually alerted me to this. Um, but this document now officially is China giving up the big, you know, joke that everyone knows of course that they are a source of massive cyber espionage against the United States. We have indicted five Chinese military officials for hacking into U.S. companies. But this document comes out now and officially acknowledges that. And the thing that I found actually the most interesting about this is that they said, look, we have military cyber forces, we have cyber groups within our equivalent of the FBI, the CIA. But there's this third component. that's neither military nor civilian government, but a non-governmental group. And we've known about this, but now the Chinese are officially acknowledging that, yes, they do employ uh, private hackers, essentially patriotic hackers, they've been called um, people who want to use their skills on behalf of the government. Um, An incredibly, uh, I guess, if you're being sort of dispassionate about it, ingenious, uh, great jobs program <laughs> <for> <laughs> to grow your economy,
0: a new career path, <laughs>
1: a new career path, and it, you know, it just sort of got me thinking. I mean. This would be essentially, you know, impossible in the United States. I mean, one or our sort of our hacking laws would forbid it. But I remember going back to maybe a few years ago when Keith Alexander was the NSA director and he went to the um, big uh, hacker conference. It was either DAF CON or Black Hat. I can't remember Black which Hat. one. It was Black Hat. And he shows up in the black jeans and the T-shirt with the lanyard, and he's sort of like, you know, he looking like... He wore black jeans and a He t-shirt. did. It was really, it was great. He like dropped the uniform and he tried to wear what he thought like a hacker looks like. <laughs> he just looked like a nerd. Um, but that was fine. He was rocking the black jeans. Um, and he essentially said to these guys, look, we need you to be part of the solution. We need you to join with us. And, you know, what he was really saying was, you know, come work for the U.S. government, come be employed, let us clear you in, maybe go do, do this through a contractor... But it sort of struck me that the Chinese were sort of taking that now to like the next level and that this is ultimately, you know, illustrates the degree to which we are sort of, I think, going to just be outmanned by the Chinese in this space. I mean, when you have as a matter of official policy employing whole sectors of your population.
2: In droves. To, in droves. Well, this this has been true for a while. I yeah. mean, you know, they're, they're, when you talk to IC people about... uh you know, Chinese versus Russian uh, offensive cyber techniques. What they'll sometimes say is, you know, when, when the Chinese attack, they uh, do it without any finesse, without any, uh, you know, care. They don't care if you know they've been there. They just throw bodies at a problem, um, and they beat on the door. And when the Russians come you don't even necessarily know they've ever been there it's you know it's it's many fewer people operating at a much higher level yeah and i think this is an example of that that they're you know employing large numbers of relatively unskilled people to do uh sort of more brute force kind of hacking
0: do you think that why do you think that they did publicly acknowledge is this is this to deter or is this a a signal you know, are they now wanting to put forward the idea that they are a tech power in a different way?
1: This is, the, this is the question I had that I still don't have a good answer to. But I like that last possibility that you put out. I mean, the, the Chinese clearly, as you know, Ben was just saying, really don't care if anybody knows that they're doing this. And they've just denied, denied, denied. And I think this is now, to some degree, putting this forward almost more in, a, in a proud kind of way. And saying that we are officially acknowledging this as part of our doctrine, you know, this is what the United States does, by the way. Too, we don't hide the fact that we have these capabilities; we just don't talk openly about what they actually are used for. Um, So, and we
0: try to imply that ours are more sophisticated than anybody else's. So you might not think we can get into that, but we can.
1: Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, we also acknowledge. I mean, the Chinese are really super good, and the Russians are are great too. But yeah, I think this is. I mean, this is this is sort of a maybe a maturing. Uh, on their part, um, I, it's a big document that includes lots of other um, um, statements and lots of other positions. and you know it, it and
0: I love that it's called the Science of Military Strategy. I love that yeah. all these Chinese government documents always put things in scientific terms.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's great. I, 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 and I'm fascinated by the idea that you know, it comes apparently it comes out. It's very hard to get a copy of it, uh, and people spend months, if not more than a year, trying to translate their relevant portions. Uh, and it's just kind of poured over, like it's like a once in a generation uh, type of document. And the Pentagon reads it very closely as well. And they've alluded to, you know, asymmetric warfare in the past, but now it seems like, you know, maybe they figured if we don't get it in this edition, it's not going to be in there till, you know, twenty thirty. Wow!
0: So, so we shouldn't feel so bad about having such a delayed national security strategy. No, is that what God you're saying? no,
1: yeah, totally. <laughs> I, mean, right. I think this makes our once interchange- every
0: thirty years really should be enough.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We are we are just ripping through it. We were writing policy in droves. I'm not giving it up. I'm not giving it up. Okay, let's move on to uh, object lesson. Um, ben, do you want to kick
2: us off? I do want to kick us off because okay. my object this, uh, this week is uh, the DJI Phantom 2 Vision Plus V3.0 quadcopter with gimbal-stabilized 14-megapixel 1080p camera plus extra battery and a 32 gigabyte micro SDHC memory card plus reader.
0: Now I know which, what you want for Christmas. Which is oh, so selling did you let him on, buy this? Is this in
2: your garage? <laughs> Not which, yet. Which is selling on Amazon for $1,175. Whoa, that's at, expensive for a little drone. Yeah, well, this is a this is a pretty substantial <clears throat> drone, actually. And I'm seriously thinking about buying one. Um, And here's my question. I I don't have a good excuse for (laughs) buying one. Um, And uh, so I was thinking the last time I really wanted to get a drone, um, which was a smaller drone, uh, and I needed a good excuse, we came up with the Lawfare Drone Smackdown, which Shane uh, officiated at. Mm -hmm. And I think all involved (laughs) agreed it was an excellent excuse to buy a drone. Oh, totally. And And,
1: and to totally legally fly them. Near the District of Columbia.
2: Yes, that's right. It it all worked out very well. So I'm thinking um, what should rational security, lawfare, me personally, Shane, Tamara do with a DJI Phantom 2 Vision Plus V3.0 quadcopter with gimbal stabilizer, etc., etc. We're looking for projects uh, for the new rational security DJI, Phantom 2, Vision Plus, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they have to to be legal. Uh, they have to be impish, good fun. Mm -hmm. And you should treat your, tweet your ideas, uh, for, uh, our, our coming drone, uh, to at RATL security. And, uh, if you, um, if you have an idea that is so good that we actually do it and buy the drone, uh, you will get to fly it. Cool. Totally legally. Totally, totally legally. legally. Over the White House. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: tomorrow. what is your object lesson?
0: Well, it will not surprise either of you that my object lesson is the awesome photo that I now have of myself and my colleague Will McCants with the amazing and beautiful Morgan Fairchild. Um, thanks to her great visit to Brookings today. She, uh, she came and spoke to some of our, uh, younger staff about activism, about social media, and I think she, she told some great stories about being an AIDS activist in Hollywood in the 1980s. She told some great stories about her life and, uh, and women in the profession. Um, and I think, what she demonstrates on Twitter every day is that you can be uh, an informed and engaged citizen. You can be a participant in the policy debate without being snarky, without being partisan. She's just a font of information and civility and perspectives that you wouldn't otherwise get. So Does um, she
2: vote in droves?
0: <laughs> she tweets in droves. That she's is, an incredible <clears throat> news aggregator. Yeah, and, she's great. And, that, uh, yeah. and just a wonderful civil presence on Twitter. So. I'm so
1: glad to hear that she was as um, uh, uh, pleasant and, you know, and that you weren't disappointed meeting her in person. You know what I mean? Like so many times you meet celebrities and they don't live up to the images you had of them. But it sounds like she really was, uh, you know, surprised, like just a great person to hang out with.
0: She yeah I we should have her on the podcast. We should totally have her on the podcast. I suggest that
1: next week's special guest. (laughs) No, Morgan Fairchild (laughs) is my object lesson next week. (laughs) I'm bringing Morgan Fairchild.
0: Don't you dare objectify Morgan Fairchild. What you
1: know? Well, you can. (laughs) You can bring her. she can be your guest. Um, So my object lesson. There's nothing particular like reason for to show this now, but um, I have this. uh, I'm putting together my new home office, and I dug out this old picture that I haven't had up in a while. I'm not doing this photograph justice, by the way. This is by a great photographer named Joe Shemansky, uh, who shows his work done at Eastern Market. If you're in D.C., check him out. Well, this is a photo of the Lincoln Memorial, and it looks like a fairly, you know, normal photo of Lincoln's hand, etc., but you can't quite see it here, but the light on it is just sort of just wonderfully, like, bathed in moonlight, I and mean, he had, took no flash uh, whatsoever. Um, and he recalls this evening, very, very or this morning, very, very well because uh it was a totally clear sky the moon was bright he woke up at around three o'clock in the morning uh and he went out and took this picture and it was the morning of september 11th 2001 at 3 a.m so i bought this picture back in 2002 uh and i just found it to be totally eerie and haunting that here he was in this sort of very wonderful calm moment that was quite literally you know this calm before the storm so Mm -hmm. i actually have that in my office and brought that in today
0: and it's a beautiful photograph
1: it is beautiful i'm really not doing it justice and i hope i'm not violating a copyright but joe love your photo people go check him out so that brings us to the end of the show uh rational security is a production of spaghetti on the wall productions you can find all of our great podcasts on spaghetti on the you can follow us and tweet at us about this new gimbal drone
2: uh, the DJI Phantom DJI 2 Phantom. Vision Plus V3.0 oh, quadcopter with gimbal stabilized 14, et cetera, et cetera.
1: At RATL Security. Uh, you can follow all of us on Twitter as well. Our podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed by the Joint Arab List.
2: That's <laughs> very good, Shane. Thank you, Van. Because <laughs> they, they voted in pros. Yeah.
1: No, our listeners are too smart for that. Our music is performed, as always, by the inimitable Sophia Yan, who I don't know if she votes in Hong Kong, but she certainly plays a meme set of keys.
2: Yeah, she plays. She plays good. Yeah, but she's uh, she is a U.S. citizen, like Edward Snowden. Like Edward Snowden, and uh, but not in Russia.
1: Uh, that's all for us uh, on behalf of my friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittis, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk at you next week.